So we turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 this morning. Illustration number 1. For the earth which bringeth in the rain, that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat, or fit for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Father, there's not a, a child among us that doesn't understand the difference between good things to eat and things that should never be eaten. Many a young child puts in their mouth things that are just yuck and then learns never to put those things in his mouth again. Today we deal with the simple to help us with the complex. We deal with the easy in order to grasp something that is very, very difficult. And so we pray that you'd give us particular wisdom as we deal with the words of this text, knowing that the metaphors employed are used variously in different places. And so help us to understand exactly the thrust of this text by way of illustration for the benefit of our souls. We ask today in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. Blueberries. Blueberry picking season in Michigan will begin soon as we head towards the end of this month. The distinctive taste of Michigan blueberries is sought after by local people far and wide. I have a discriminate taste bud, or buds. Back in the day when they were offering, offering the Pepsi challenge, I took it and chose Coke every time. I could always tell the difference. I can always tell the difference between a Coke and a Pepsi. I prefer Coke. And when it comes to blueberries, I can tell you by tasting them if they're from Michigan or not. But there's one word, just one word, that always comes to my mind whenever I think about Michigan blueberries, and that word is more. <laughs> I want more of my favorite fruit. Now, it is no shock for me to tell you that God wants more of his favorite fruit too. God's good and creative hand gave us blueberries. But God's favorite fruit is Christ. The true vine is Christ. And his disciples are his branches, as told to us in John's Gospel, chapter 15. Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. The first illustration of the sixth chapter 
is drawn from nature and agriculture to underscore the desire and the provision of God for fruit, the very fruit of Christ. In the life of every Christian, we said in presenting the overview of this sixth chapter that two illustrations are brought to bear upon the imperative of chapter 6, 1 to 3, that the Hebrews would go on in Christ-like maturity, or as it says in the King text, let us go on to perfection. That in the idea of that imperative of going on to perfection, there are two imperatives brought to bear. The first one is brought to bear from the world of agriculture and horticulture. And the second illustration that we'll cover later on when we get to it is brought to bear from history, namely the history of Abraham. Uh, we have in this particular text an emphasis that runs throughout the chapter in which we all are to uh, uh, achieve, as it were, a growing sense of our perfection. And that we are using that word in the same way in which Christ himself was made perfect in the first advent, as we studied previously in chapter 2 and verse 10, concerning the fact that Christ, our Messiah, was made perfect by suffering. And then back in chapter 5 and verse 9 where we read, and being made perfect, he became the, eternal, the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. The perfect Christ became more perfect. The perfect Christ bore the fruit of human trust and obey. He who was not human, but God, became man, and as man, lived perfectly. And he became perfect humanly by means of trust and obey. Thus, the overriding thrust of this section of Hebrews is to live the life of trust and obey. The first illustration of that is going to be drawn upon this idea of horticulture, and the second illustration draws upon the history of Ab Abraham as recorded in verses 13 to 15. Now the point of the first illustration is clear and straightforward, and that is that God is like a gardener, and his rain falls upon the fruit he craves, and his rain falls upon the weeds he detests. The fruit he craves, the weeds he detests, rain falls upon it all. All the earth is the production of both that which is craved and that which is detested. In this case, we are called to attention concerning that which God craves, namely the fruit of Christ, and that which God detests in contrast to the fruit of Christ. There's very little doubt that other natural and agricultural illustrations in Scripture do run along the similar line. But one of the things that you have to be careful of in regards to Scripture is that you match the metaphor used to the text. In the same way that years and years ago, I became convicted as a pastor that when you preach Matthew, you ought to preach Matthew and not John. That when you preach Matthew, you ought to preach Matthew and not Mark. That when you preach Matthew, you ought to preach Matthew and not, and not Luke. 
And, and it isn't because there isn't harmony in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's great harmony. But the point is, is that if you are all hung up on the harmony, like so many in the evangelical world are hung up on harmony between the four Gospels, then what happens is, is that you have a point, but it's not the point of the text. And the same thing is true by illustrations. When you use an illustration, and then you use an illustration, and then you use the illustration, you yourself may not use those illustrations exactly in the same way. And neither does God's word. And so to collect all of the illustrations of, of nature and all of the illustrations of fruit and weeds, or in this text, herbs and briars, that uh, to collect all of the illustrations of that through the Bible and just lump them together in some kind of a generic way will give you the generic meanings for the metaphors, but it does not give to you the meaning of the text. And this text has a very precise meaning and the metaphor has to be applied, as it were, very, very precisely. Now, in the parable, for instance, of the sower, Mark chapter 4, Matthew 13, the good seed of the word of God is variously productive because of the soil types which fall upon which that seed falls. And immediately following the parable of the sower, you have uh, the illustration of wheat and tares, growing side by side, indicating something of the true and the false existing together until the day of harvest. There are similar and related truths here in Hebrews 6, but Hebrews 6 is not the exact truth of either one of those things. But it is important that we stick to the text for the primary point of emphasis here. Let me point out a few of the interesting words in this illustration before we tackle the whole of it. First of all, the word herbs in the Greek renders our English word botany. The scientific word botany comes from the Greek word translated in our text, herbs. The botanicals produced as desired are produced by the gift of God's rain and the work of the dresser or the work of the cultivator. It's always fascinated me that God gave Adam a dressing command before weeds were an issue. And my good friend Dr. John Whitcomb of science creation fame uses that fact to teach a sense of the second law of thermodynamics before the fall of man. It's interesting. But nonetheless, the gift of God's reign falls upon all the earth, and that in this text is combined with the work of the dresser or the cultivator. In other agricultural illustrations in Scripture, God is the cultivator. But here, in Hebrews 6, the dressers or the cultivators are those working with the herbs for benefit. The word blessing is said to come from God's own well speech or good speaking. The word in Greek is eulogia. It renders the English eulogy. It means to speak well of. It means to praise. 
Herein, in our text, God is pictured as speaking well, or speaking, as it were, well done to the fruit-bearing earth at the hands of the dressers. Let me say it one more time because it is crucial to understanding this text. Herein God is pictured as saying, well done to the fruit-bearing earth at the hands of the dressers. And finally, the word beareth in verse 8 stands in contrast to the words bringeth forth in verse 7 in that undesirable weeds grow without dressing, without cultivation, but the desirable herbs demand it. The things we desire from the garden require dressing. The things we could care less about in the garden require no dressing. The things we desire require work. The things we don't desire don't require any work. That is a significant insight to this illustration. Here would be then the main point of this particular illustration. God's stated desire and demand for the Hebrews requires dressing or spiritual cultivation on their part in order that they might enjoy the fruit that God craves. There's no doubt that the herbs depict saved and the weeds depict the unsaved, but the point is that herbs require dressing or cultivation. That's the point of the illustration. That you have to work to get the good fruit of the garden. Now there are other passages where nature and agriculture uh, depictions are found that will give us further insight into our understanding of Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. And so we'll be making reference to a number of passages and looking at a couple. The first thing that I would call your attention to in verse 7 is the phrase, For the earth which drinketh in the rain. That phrase, the earth drinking in the rain, is informed by the words of the Lord Jesus himself as recorded in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 44 and 45. Go there quickly. It's one of the few passages we'll turn to this morning just for further clarity. Matthew 5, 44, 45. Jesus said, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, we should have a little insight to those words based upon the sermon that preceded this one. 
in the hour before this concerning just and righteousness. And God sends grace upon people, both saved and unsaved. But he's looking for something to be produced in the life of those upon whom he reigns his justness, namely his people. And if there's any doubt in your mind as to where the Lord Jesus goes with this particular illustration under the banner of loving your enemies, just look at verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Wow! In other words, God wants us to manifest the truth and grace of Christ. He wants us to bear the fruit of Christ. Christ is the true vine, we are the branches, and we are to bear unto God great fruit. The Father is glorified by the production of fruit. What Hebrews 6 has to say about that fruit production is this. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to work at it. And just because there are passages of Scripture, and there are, where the cultivator is God, and he is the producer of the fruit, can any man produce the fruit of Christ apart from the Spirit of God's activity? No! Will the Spirit of God produce the fruit of Christ apart from your participation? No! The fruit of God's desire only is manifest by the work of the Spirit and our work. And so to say that in the simple terms in which almost any child could get it, we have Hebrews 6, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed. Receiveth blessing, receiveth well done, Receiveth good speech, eulogeo, from God. This passage is talking about how to live so as to hear God's well done. The second phrase in the illustration is the phrase near to being cursed. Near to being cursed, or nigh unto cursing, as it's found in verse 8. That reminds me, we won't turn there, but it reminds me of Genesis 3, 17 and 18, in which the ground was cursed for man's sake. It was, man wasn't. It brings forth thorns and thistles on its own. He eats the good things produced only by the great toil of the days of his physical labor. The change before sin after sin was sweat on the brow. Easy became hard because of sin. But nonetheless, 
we confront here the idea of that which is near or nigh, close to being cursed. Not cursed, but close to being cursed. And then you have, thirdly, the phrase, or the word, I should say, rejected. Verse 8, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. That refers to the thorns and the briars that are destined to be burned or to be done away with. John 15, 6, the Lord told the apostles in the upper room that if anyone does not abide in him, that he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and that they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Dead and dry twigs are destined for the campfire. Without abiding in Christ, all that any man on his own can produce is dead and dry twigs. Jesus said it plainly. Without me, ye can do nothing. And so for a Christian to get the idea that it's all about his resolve is destined to fail. For the Christian that has the goofy idea, I'm just going to let go and let God, that is a goofy idea. There's no lack of extremities among the people of God. We shift towards the extreme right and left. The ship would be capsized every moment if it wasn't for Christ in the stern. But he is in the stern. And he helps us to stay in the channel. And he helps us to stay in the place of blessing. And thereby we cannot commend the idea of it's all on me, it's all on you. Neither can we commend the idea of it's not on me at all, it's not on you at all, like when we're talking about our personal salvation. No, we're talking about fruit. We're talking about good fruit. And good fruit only comes by the work of God and the cooperation of God's child, the work of the cultivator, the work of the dresser, the phrase, it is rejected, or is rejected, is clarified by the only other place in the New Testament where that exact word rejected is used. Not going to turn there either, but I'll name it for you. 1 Corinthians 9.27. 1 Corinthians 9.27 is where Paul is speaking of his ongoing concern to live a faithful life, lest having preached to others, he would become cast away or disqualified. The word cast away in the English text, meaning disqualified, is the very word translated rejected in Hebrews 6, 8. Now, there's other New Testament places where the same root word is used, but the only other place in the New Testament where the exact word, as translated rejected in verse 8, is used, is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. In the six other occurrences of the root word to reject in the New Testament, those references are almost equally divided between applications to the saved 
and the unsaved. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, that same root word is applied to unbelievers with reprobate minds, with rejected minds, with disqualified minds. Unsaved people whose minds have become corrupted by false worship. And yet, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the very same root word is applied to Christians who are living contrary to the honor of Christ. Christians that embrace good doctrine, but are not marked by good behavior. Christians that believe right, but don't behave right. And I remind you this morning that the world outside the doors of this church could care less about what we believe. They can only get a true sense of this church and my life and yours by how we behave. So I pray that you are a Christian that understands the significance of good behavior for the honor of Christ. I learned that on a number of different occasions, and in some ways, the hard way. In 1977, when I first became the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Cass City, I got a little confused on those issues, and I decided that it would be really, really good in that town of less than 2,000 people over on the other side of the state. I got the idea it would be really, really good if we printed a little pamphlet that said what we believe. And so we got it all together. We took excerpts from our our, uh, our uh, Constitution and quoted a lot of Bible verses and included a plan of salvation and we printed it uh, on, a, on a good heavy stock piece of paper that feels good in your hand like our bulletin, not some cheap thing you buy it at uh, Office Max. And, uh, and, we, uh, and we had a good paper and uh, it looked good and a nice picture and, and we printed them up for our people to distribute uh, what we believe. I, I gave them out all over town and after about a week, I was sitting in the morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, with Rula Ponce, the city manager, who was a deacon in our church, and Dick Shaw, who was one of our farmers. And uh, he'd come into town for some parts for his tractor, and, and, uh, and he was there for coffee. And we were sitting there in coffee, and this old farmer that I knew and had talked to many times, this old godless farmer that cared less about nothing, wearing his bib overalls with his white T-shirt underneath his bibs, and, uh, and stuck in the top pocket of his bib was this pamphlet that said, What We Believe. And he made sure it was sticking up high so I could see it when he came, came into, the, into Summer's Bakery Restaurant. Best Irish salt bread you'll ever eat in your life, uh, Summer's Bakery, Cassidy, Michigan. I don't even know if it's still there. But nonetheless, it was there. And, uh, and the old farmer came in with what we believe stuck right here in his, uh, in his bibs. And he walked over to my table, and he pulled out the paper, and he threw it at me. And he said, I don't care. I was reminded that day that most of the world don't care about what we believe. But that farmer had a daughter, and when his daughter was sick and in the hospital, I called on her, had prayer with her, 
And the same farmer who threw the pamphlet at me and said, I don't care, sat down at the coffee table and thanked me for praying for his daughter. People don't care what we believe. People care what, how we behave. We impact people by how we behave, not by what we believe. Now, I'm not dismissing at all the importance of doctrine. You know that. God cares that we believe right. But God also cares that we live right. And to live right requires the cultivation of God's spirit and your own efforts of cultivation to live a life that is true to God. In the light of the imperative of Hebrews chapter 6, let us go on to perfection. We can say that it is the fallen believer, saved yet fruitless, that one bears thorns and briars. Two is nigh unto cursing. Three, whose end is to be burned. So much of believers' lives as lived in 2022 is burnable. Whole ministries are burnable before the fire of God's judgment. Complement to the terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the believer is saved so as by fire which burns up the truly unspiritual elements of life lived as represented by wood, hay, and stubble. In that context, the Christian reader is told to buy and build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Interestingly, and in a similar way, the instruction to the church in Laodicea Revelation 3 is to buy of Christ, quote, gold tried in the fire, end quote. This idea of buy gold has to do with appropriating the truths of Scripture in a living kind of a way, not just in a believing kind of a way, but in a behaving kind of a way not just as a matter of your creed, but as a matter of your conduct. Not just a matter of your aptitude, but as a matter of your aptitude. There'll be the application of the word of God to life. And the Bible speaks of that as buying gold. Buying into the life as described in the scripture, for yourself. Certainly, herbs can represent believers and the depiction of weeds on believers. But the point of Hebrews chapter 6 is to the Lord's people to dress and to cultivate the fruit of God's desire and provision. 
God wants more. He wants more Christ in and of you. God craves the fruit of Christ in me. He craves the fruit of Christ in you. And you can be sure, he cultivates along those lines. The afflictions that he brings into life and the assurances that he brings into our life are met together in the truth and grace of God in order to cause us to bear more fruit. Likewise, in Hebrews 6, you and I are admonished to be proactive in bearing fruit, in cooperation with God, because God indeed has rained down his blessings on you and me. No man can say he's without God's blessing. Without God, you don't breathe. You don't live another nanosecond. But those of us that have trusted in Jesus Christ, oh, we have insights into the blessing of God that is far, far beyond the natural and the physical world in which we live. God has given us so very much. God has given to us so very much. And it is important that we use what God has given to us for his glory and for our good. It is imperative that we use what God has given us for his glory and our good. That is an apt description of the life rightly called Christian. God help us to understand. Father, thank you this morning for a compelling illustration that brings to bear the realities of cooperation with thy indwelling Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. Once again, we find ourselves speaking of Christ, referencing Christ, today the fruit of Christ. Certainly you would have us in the days of sojourn as Christians to talk about Jesus Christ. Thank you for the flock. Bless the flock in the understanding. Bless the flock in implementation of Bible truth to be lived in the days of this new week. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.